another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high-stakes speed bumps and off-ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell and Corey Frank from Branch 49. How do you de-risk your company? Marketing and business consultant John Orban and our Market Dominance Guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank, wind up their four-part conversation by offering our listeners a great deal of advice about how to balance potential risk. These three sales scholars delve into the potential problems of forecasting your company's success, the possible perils of determining the market value of your sales pipeline, and the pitfalls of the practice of inflating your sales and revenue prior to a reporting period, which is known as stuffing the channel. I give myself good advice, but I seldom follow it, admits Lewis Carroll's famous character, Alice. In this vein, Chris warns that being in love with your brilliant idea for a business can make you into your great idea zombie, ignoring all you've learned about de-risking. Save yourself from that fate by listening to this week's Market Dominance Guys episode, Beware the Jabberwock, my son. All the games that were played to make sales, you would not believe the stuff that went on. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the reasons why a number of insurance companies went out of business because of all the games that that their sales reps were doing. Well, I think the question the compensation system is a problem. It's a very interesting problem, right? We don't we don't uh, compensate our our uh, software engineers on how many lines of code they wrote this week. And then have them go out and fake up some lines of code that, you know, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to add this, delete it, and add it, delete it, and add it, delete it. Oh, God, I've got enough code, right? I, I found yeah. that, that yeah. person yeah. who was alive and would sign that insurance policy. I, we don't do that anywhere else in business. And it's a hangover. And it's a hangover, I believe, from the fundamental nature of manufacturing uh, driven capitalism, manufacturing mm-hmm. core mm-hmm. capitalism, where we came up with a trick. It sounds like the ultimate trick, which is take raw materials, use machines, and turn them into something, <laughs> therefore allowing money to turn into more money in a very predictable way. But it comes with a problem. You got to dump the finished goods inventory somewhere. Right. Otherwise, it piles up. So how often do we have to dump it or what's our flow rate to dump it? Well, our flow rate to dump it is determined by the flow rate of our factory and our buffer for finished goods inventory. So we do a bunch of things. Here's a gaming thing that people do in sales called stuffing the channel. So we expand the buffer by getting channel partners to take on inventory that they may or may not be able to sell. Yeah. Why do we do that? To make the number today. Why do we do that? Because the number today allows us to invest in the factory at very low interest rates, maybe even negative interest rates to borrow that money because we don't have to borrow it. We got it from customers in advance, and therefore we can make our factory bigger and it can dump more widgets out into finished goods inventory. And at some point, the channel, as they say, barfs it back up on us, right? That's a thing that the channel does. This is no longer what's interesting in the world. What's interesting in the world now is in B2B, is helping companies acquire capabilities that let them run better or grow more cost-efficient or capital-efficient way or more smoothly or less brain damage or less unethically or whatever it is they're trying to do. That's what we're selling. And there is no finished goods inventory. There's nothing to dump. And so we compensate salespeople as though they're dumping or as though they're stuffing the channel. Let's face it, as though they're stuffing the channel. 
and we admire them and call it President's Club if they stuff the channel enough this year because they got a club and nobody next year. It's like, oh, he had a bad year. No, the channel barfed up his stuffing back onto it. <laughs> right? That's, right. That's what really happened. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's a it's a funny thing. I don't see it changing soon because. Mm-hmm. Frankly, the very best salespeople get to ride on that surfboard. And it's okay for them that they get paid immense amounts of money for being really good, even though you could pay them the same immense amount of money and they would sell just as much or more. And you mm-hmm. could trust them. You could just go, hey, I'm just going to pay you this. Mm-hmm. Like, like we do with CEOs, right? CEOs are considered often to be the top salesperson in the company. We don't ever pay commissions still. I, at least I don't get one. Uh, Mm -hmm. maybe I should go talk to my board about a little commission work, but, you know, on the side. So it's, it's a very interesting situation in which we're still, I would say early in the evolutionary process of coming to terms with post-industrial. It's not even capitalism anymore. It's just post-industrial innovation economy. We're coming coming to terms. We're having Matt from Pete's Band Capital, right? Was it next week, I believe? He's going to be on the show. Right. And uh, one of his associates. And I was talking with Robert Vera, who's been on the show as well. Chris, as you know, it's a later episode, John. So as you catch up through the last couple of years, you'll eventually get to uh, Robert Vera. <laughs> and, right, and Chris, you've yet said this quote, too. And it's interesting to see how kindred minds here think alike. It's, you know, to create this de-risk revenue generation machine, right, should be the goal of every board and every CEO and every CRO, a de-risk revenue generation machine. And as we talk about the math of sales, right? Again, your colleague, Jerry Hill posted a great article today on the math of sales. I'm a big fan of math of sales, Ryan Research, Sean Cease, where we have a community, James Thornburg, connected cell as a weapon has enabled you to take the emotion, don't get emotional about math, right? Mm. And realize where you are as identifying the constraint in the system and then mm. focusing on that constraint in the system. Mm-hmm. And, but you have zero risk Right, Chris, in pursuing this math of sales, this methodology as you speak, because if it doesn't pan out, what are you out? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It, actually, it's really funny. In the innovation economy, fundamentally, the only thing that we're risking is the time it takes to find out if anybody wants a solution to the right, problem right. that they're having that is along the lines that we think we're capable of producing. Yeah. It is, it's so low risk and it's so fast. It can be done with one or two people in almost any size market. It can be done in less than two weeks, normally one week in any size market. And it's mm-hmm. the step everybody skips. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the reason yeah. they skip it is, think of the process, right? You have this idea. The idea is, is a brilliant idea. At least it seems that way to you. It takes over your mind. You think about it day and night. Whatever that brilliant idea is, you think about it. All of us who do this kind of work, have this problem. We come up with something. I got a great idea. Let's go use Connect and Sell to call folks and help them see the wisdom of donating money to X, Y, or Z. I mean, there it could be a great idea. And I could think it all the way through and I could get mm-hmm. these kind of people to do it. The idea takes me over. It parasitizes me. Yeah. It yeah. zombifies me. I am yeah. now that idea zombie and it yeah. controls my life for a little while. So now is the next natural step to go and say, huh, I wonder if anybody will buy this. <laughs> I really want to be out of it within a week if they, if they won't buy it. Rationally, great idea. 
<laughs> emotionally, I mean, there's a kind of an ant, for instance, and it gets parasitized by a microorganism. I think it's actually a fungus, perhaps. And that microorganism, it's one of these real little tiny things, right? It lives inside the ant, but it needs to be eaten by a bird in order to go through the rest of its life cycle to reproduce. So what does it do? Well, it takes over the mind of the ant, the brain of the ant, and it says, you know what? I think what would really feel really good right now would be to climb this blade of grass. (laughs) I want to go up. I am an upwardly mobile ant. I just feel the urge suddenly, right? It's like I feel the urge to take this great idea out. And then the ant gets to the top of the blade of grass. It goes, you know, being head up just doesn't work for me anymore. I want to be head down and kind of feel the feel the ant blood rush to my little antenna while I'm hanging here by my hind legs, my sick legs. I wonder why my abdomen turned so red and looking like, oh, I'll ignore that. That big red berry of an ad, that won't cause a problem. And then a bird comes down and eats the ant and the parasite gets what it wants, right? So we have to avoid being that ant when we have been zombified by the idea that takes us as entrepreneurs. And how do we do that? Well, it's hard. This is why we should always do business with somebody else, but we need a partner in business that says, let's take a look. Take a look. And the way we take a look is to go out into our hypothetical market, turn it into an actual list, Mm-hmm. Talk to people on that list with our breakthrough script that attempts to set meetings for our brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Look at a simple number, which is what is our appointment setting rate for those meetings. And if it's above threshold, then we're okay. But otherwise, thank God we didn't get to the top of that blade of grass and mm-hmm. turn our shiny, mm-hmm. very red butt up into the sky and let a bird eat us. That's right. That's, that's right. what happens. That's exactly yeah, right. That, that, that's amazing stuff. Yeah. So, John, you've been in sales for a while and you've sold all kinds of products. And now you're in the art world. So you're using mm-hmm. the other side of the, the brain a little bit more on a full-time basis, a consultant advisor to many upcoming artists and, and galleries, et cetera. So if I'm selling art right? versus Chris and I are in the software business, the services business, but if I'm selling art, a lot of these same rules apply. It's interesting because I'm still trying to learn what's involved with that. And I happened to hear on one of your podcasts that Susan was a former gallery owner. I don't know whether she still isn't in gallery or not. I'd love to talk with her about some of the things that she's experienced. But I think most people would agree that art is pretty much of an emotional purchase. You see a picture and it reminds you of a vacation you took or it reminds you of your grandfather or, or something. And you make that emotional connection and then you and you get it. I've, I've over the last, I don't know, 10 or so years, I've tried to analyze why is the Mona Lisa such an amazing picture? And how come we've only painted one of those in, what, 550 years or something like that? I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense, but they had something going on back in the Renaissance, and it's not just the Renaissance. I mean, you take the 1800s, uh, up until about 1920, when art just went south, except for people that were still doing well, what I consider to be real art. It's always been that emotional connection. It's the interplay of color, and sometimes it's a subject matter, but I'm still trying to figure all that out. And in the meantime, I'm trying to learn to paint myself and, and get better at it and see if if I can crack that code, then 
I'll do the next Mona Lisa. You know, I mean, that's that's my project for right now, but we'll, we'll see well, how that you know, all works I out. I think why this is so, here you are, right? You're a master of your craft. You've been in, in sales for years and years. You've sold millions and millions of dollars worth of products to thousands of prospects. Chris, you have the same, right? Taking companies public and raised money and been entrepreneur in residence and all this stuff, right? And I've made my share of phone calls too. And I think as a science guy, Chris, right? You say, hey, what makes a law a law? is that it's a constant, right? Uh, entropy or thermodynamics or math of sales. But where this is still so elusive is that, are we trying to really, like when you talk about trust, when you talk about engendering trust, you're talking about building curiosity. We know it when we see it like good art. I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. But of course, with the math of sales, I can actually know it when I see it too. You look at stats constantly of dial to connects for companies and look at their, their chart. But what we're talking about isn't quite a law, but it's also not a theory, correct? I mean, what would you call this kind of tweener period we are, what we're trying to build here in market dominance? There is an underlying theory but it's not hard and fast. You can't go in and say in every single situation, this is what is happening. But in business, we don't get to do that anyway. We're not trying to make something happen every time. We always are dealing with ignorance of the future, right? That's the nature of complex systems. Our ignorance is vast, very, very vast. The only way we know how to manage ignorance in the large is through portfolio theory. That is, we, we have more, more little bets. More little bets are safer than one big bet if we can decouple the little bets. Now, it's very tricky to know that you've decoupled your bets, by the way. I thought, it, for instance, in my floor finishing company that I decoupled my bets. And then I found out that on at midnight on November 1st every year, they turn on the big old furnace in every hospital in the Midwest and the humidity goes down. And the airflow goes up. And wow, that's interesting. Those things all happen at the same time. And so if you think your bets are decoupled, and I thought mine were, you can find yourself failing everywhere at the same time. So even that's hard. Portfolio theory is hard to apply because it's very difficult to get under the covers and say, these are truly decoupled. They're decoupled from big moves in the economy, whatever it happens to be. The way we manage risk, therefore, this is part of the theory, is we go fast. So before bad things can happen, good things are done, right? So the market dominance theory says, I'm going to decouple my bets by spreading them across many individual conversations within my hypothesized market. And then I'm going to move fast enough that even if they turn out to be coupled in a disastrous way, I don't go broke. Because I know that's my state I'm trying to avoid is the broke state, right? The, the going bust. I used to be a professional gambler, as you know. And the number one rule as a professional gambler is you don't go bust. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer, investor, or partner is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's time to really go big, you need to use an uncommon methodology to gain attention, frame your thoughts, and employ a successful sequencing that is fresh enough to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. From crafting just the right cold call screenplays to curating and mapping the ideal call list for your entire TAM, Branch 49's modern and innovative sales toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. And we're back 
with Corey and Chris. Because then you're out of you're out of the big game. So everything you're doing has to do with matching your bet size against your bankroll size and running a portfolio of bets over time. And you got to do it fast before bad things happen externally. So it's more of a system built around those two big ideas that, look, everything is risky. Big stuff that can go big is really risky. Therefore, start small, go fast, and use really tight feedback loops. Like Boyd, the fighter pilot Boyd, right? John Boyd, he's the guy who revolutionized modern warfare by coming up with this notion of the OODA loop. So the OODA loop says you're going to orient yourself, then you're going to observe, then you're going to decide, then you're going to act. The, the shorter the time cycle of your OODA loop, the lower your risk is in making one bad decision that's going to cost you your life because you have time to do it again, to orient yourself again, observe again, decide again, and act again. So what, what the market dominance theory basically says is it's not really about sales. It says In a world of uncertainty, speed to understanding of something no one else knows that's a value, and that is this list of people will actually buy this thing, and therefore it'll get cheaper and faster and easier to get more and more of them to buy it. The faster you can do that and get to market dominance in any size market, the safer you are because market dominance is more predictable than individual sales, which are more predictable than market acceptance. And so you come up with proxies for the future, like, hey, let me talk to you about a meeting. Oh, if you take the meeting, that's a proxy for you buying the product because it's linearly related mathematically on a portfolio basis to Mm -hmm. folks buying the product. That's actually the underlying, you know, John, you said it's sort of like, this is almost like a physicist would say unified field theory. Mm -hmm. It's actually the application of gambling theory which is universal in the world of ignorance, of ignorance theory, I'd call it, to the realities that we face in the world where we're trying to provide value. Yeah, I and, used to handicap horse races, so. Uh, <laughs> and I only used to bet on long shots, anything that was eight to one or higher, so. Yeah, that's really funny. The guy who built the, the Museum of New and Old in Hobart, Tasmania, built that fortune <laughs> on two things. One is he started out as a blackjack player and then he did the horse racing handicapping thing all on long shots because there's an emotional reason long shots are mathematically superior. You have to endure the fact that you're generally not, it's not going to pay off, but when it does, it pays big. And you only have to wait three minutes about to find yeah, out whether right. it's going to pay off. Or not. The, the cycle times are quick. It's, a, it's <laughs> You'll notice, by the way, that Without them admitting it, a lot of people who are kind of doing innovative work in business often have a gambling background. Sean McLaren himself has got a background as a t- uh, in New Orleans that he can talk about, and I won't, way, way back. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that Sean could have done something longer ago than my life, but it's entirely possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm such a young guy that I think it's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that what's funny is the rest of this is, okay, what are the universals? Well, the universals are in B2B. People are afraid of buying stuff because they could lose their career. Right, right. That's that's pretty much universal. Do I find people who will buy stuff because it's intriguing to them? Sure. They're called tech enthusiasts. Do I need to identify them and avoid thinking that they're part of the market? 
Yes. Is that easy or hard? It's hard because I love my product and therefore when they buy its idea, I feel loved and therefore I'm attracted to it. So what do I have to do? Put up barriers to going in that direction. What kind mm -hmm. of barriers? Well, preferably having a business partner says, remember when we talked about tech enthusiasts? Yeah, Mary over there is one of those. Let's not sell to Mary. Or we're so early, we don't know if our stuff will work. So let's go sell to Mary, but let's not mistake Mary for the market. When do we know we're dealing with an electron? And when do we know we're dealing with a big old heavy proton? And when do we know it's a neutron? And when do we know the quarks are? You got to categorize in order to make good decisions. But that's about it. That is really about it. And the reason we talk so much about trust is trust is the hard part because you've got to trust that you've got the goods and the staying power to not have to make this deal mm -hmm. so that somebody yep. can trust you as a yep. partner, collaborator very early in the relationship, like from the first seven seconds. Yeah. And that is hard for people to come to for a lot of reasons. We talked about Eric Honhauer climbing the El Cap thing. Imagine the level of trust he has to have in himself to even try that stuff, much less to make that one move. And it wasn't the slab, which is a, the one that freaks me out because I have bad experiences trying to downclimb slabs in Yosemite, but it was that karate kick move. Anybody who wants to go back and watch Free Solo if you want to get what got me, and I I know of what I speak to some degree as a yeah, former right. big wall climber. Alex Hunold. That's what Alex Alex Hunold. So Alex has got to make a move. That's the one thing you never want to do as a climber. It's called a committed move. Mm -hmm. He has to trust an outcome that he actually knows he's not in control of. And it's the one where he decides of all the moves to be made there, that karate kick move that just looks so bizarre when he does it is actually the one with the lowest risk of failure in the circumstances in which he anticipated finding himself with regard to how he would feel, how his body would feel, how his mind would feel at that point in the climb. And he chose that from his portfolio, just like we have to do in sales. We have to choose stuff that isn't always going to work. Now, he was going without a rope. In sales, we pretty much have a rope. Mm -hmm. Very rare that we're betting our entire career on a deal. I've, I've done it a couple of times myself, stay, staying detached and just being on the other person, the other company side, the other person's side, write a, a long deal that's fraught and you might, you're going to go out of business if you don't get it done. Zero. Yeah. That's hard. That's, that's harder that to do. That's through mastery when you can do that stuff. But most of us in sales don't have to do that. Now you mentioned, uh, What's your law on gambling, right? Never go to <laughs> never go to zero. And, you know, certainly uh, it's a little tougher today because if I raise money in an A round, a B round, and I'm not going on that trajectory, um, I don't necessarily have that concern of going to zero, do I? Because I can always get more money. I can always do it down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You've been, I'm going to, let me talk about that just for a moment, because this is something people, people think they're de-risking their company by taking venture capital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mentioned this before on the show. Read the docs. Yeah, Read the corporate yeah, docs. Yeah, 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 Read yeah. them in detail and ask yourself one simple question about every sentence. Is this sentence to protect them or me? Mm -hmm. Just yeah. add them up. Tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. Add them up. 
put them on the scale, do it page by page, any way you want to do it, you'll see they're professionals at something. And if you read it in detail, you'll find out they're professionals at salvaging value from businesses that are being thrown away. Yeah, That's what they're professionals at. So you have decided in order to de-risk your company to go and go into business with somebody whose primary outcome is salvaging your business. If you think about it that way, you might have a different point of view about risk. Another way you can get your venture capital is find the smallest possible market you can imagine that's a true market and go take it mm-hmm. and let that be your venture capital. Mm-hmm. That will de-risk your company. That's right. Dominic. Yep. I think we talk about the gambling, right? There's uh, one of the books, it's on my list. I think I sent you a few weeks ago, John, is Against the Odds or it's Against All Odds. I think it's uh, Against the Gods. Against the Gods. I love that. Against the Gods, right? By Peter Bernstein. Yes. And he talks about that in the 12th, 13th century, right around there, the concept, you're a mathematician, Chris, you probably know this better, is the, the Hindu Arabic numbering system finally came and replaced letters as a symbol of value, right? And then this consequential concept of zero was finally established. And then this concept of zero established. So the tools and mindset were finally in place for uh, algebra and accounting and math of, of market domination, et cetera. But that concept of zero seems to be lost a little bit in folks that raise a little bit too much VC. Um, (laughs) They think they're climbing with the rope. They think they're climbing with the rope. And the other one that I was reminded the other day, I was just talking about with Robert Vera about this was there's a weather forecaster in charge of weather forecasting for the United States Air Force in World War II, right? A lot of weather patterns. Hey, they just came across Normandy and they've got to figure out how we can get to Berlin as quickly as possible and we need air cover. And so this particular gentleman was in charge of making predictions for the weather over the following few months. And this weather forecaster quickly realized that these long range forecasts that he was putting together were effectively useless. (laughs) No better Mm -hmm. than pulling numbers out of a hat. (laughs) When he argued like the dutiful loyal soldier he was up to chain of command, when he argued that they should be discontinued, the reply came back, uh, the commanding general is well aware that the forecasts are no good. However, he needs them for planning purposes. (laughs) And I think when we have folks, again, like our colleague Jerry Hill put on his LinkedIn post today that, hey, we got we're in the season of kickoffs this year. Right. There's all kinds of company corporate kickoffs and raise the bar, race for revenue, swing for the fences, whatever cliched, vapid kickoff they're going to have as a theme. There's going to be forecasts. And if there's no forecasts without math, the math of sales, as we're talking, the concept of zero, you're living off a little bit of hopium there, it seems. Right. It's a funny world. It's a funny world in the sense that when you take somebody else's money, you're taking it in exchange for a story. Mm. So when you're raising money, for the, and by the way, anybody who listens to us and thinks, oh, Chris doesn't like, you know, VCs or whatever, that's not true. I actually, I actually think investors provide all sorts of wonderful services to come I'm just saying, keep your, keep your damned eyes open for mm-hmm. certain things that are kind of universal out there. When you're raising money, investors want to see a story of how it could be if everything works. They need an answer to this question, which is, is this worth investing in? Because if it's, if it's not worth investing in, if it works, 
it's certainly not worth investing in if it doesn't work. Mm. So they would just want to know not whether it's going to work or not, but if it works, will it have turned out to be a good investment? That's actually the, the first order question. Most things, the answer is no. Even if they work, they wouldn't have been worth investing in. My mother used to have this phrase, if something's not worth doing, it's certainly not worth doing well. (laughs) So most mothers didn't tell their kids this, but my mother had a special way with words, shall we say, (laughs) some of which involved the desert where you could bury a child. So that's something that gets confusing to folks because then when they raise the money and now here are the, the what was put on paper was, is it going to be worth doing if it works? Now the question isn't that anymore. Now the question is, really, how do we want to balance financial risk and potential return? That's a completely different question. And you need forecasts that are a little shorter term, because now you have questions like, are we going to run out of money? Do we want to run out of money? All sorts of questions like that come into play. And so you switch. It's like switching from that hard, flat voice where you throw yourself under the bus. I know I'm an interruption. Now you have a new purpose. Come along with me, right? Yeah. It's, can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? Those are different conversations for different purposes. Mm-hmm. And I think folks get confused by it. The weather forecast has a similar role. The weather forecast needs to, not like, are we going to decide to fly or not based on this, whatever it happens to be. It's in general, How are we going to allocate and stage our resources in case things turn out a certain way so we can react at lower cost and shorter cycle time? Mm -hmm. I think people really, really overplay proactivity in business. They just wildly overplay it. The primary thing you have in business is your ability to react. Could you proact your way through COVID in December of 2019? Yeah. Right. You can't. Who made it well through COVID? Those who had buffers that were against some bad things. They didn't put all their chips on the same table, so to speak. And then those those who reacted really, really fast and reacted fast in ways that were not overreactions. Right. Because overreacting is a bad idea, too. Reaction is undervalued, I believe, in the world of business. It is the number one thing you've got to be able to do is Take your forecast, take your plans, take your whatever, and go, okay, that was nice. Now what? How quickly can we think through the current situation? And what are the what is the one thing that we should do today in order to stay alive? Mm-hmm. Or in order to take advantage of an opportunity, right. in order to snap the mousetrap, one or the other. Yeah, I love religion right as a catholic we have it in our the lord's prayer give us this day our daily bread not give us our q4's bread uh, 401k or uh, right even god the the son of man himself said listen today is what i want you to focus on right Mm, right 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 well i also love that concept you talk about how this how the sdrs and bdrs should be on the balance sheet you know because that gives you that extra hedge to be able to react as well um, because that's a that's a powerful concept, it seems to me, and how you want to value that, I don't know, but that is definitely an asset that's un, that's underappreciated, I think. Yeah, and I think I think your pipeline should be on your balance sheet too, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It is, but it's in a subtle way, right? If you actually ask a, a financial expert, where's the pipeline? Mm-hmm. It's like what pipeline? 
Yeah. Well, where is it? That's obvious. Is it an asset? Oh, I don't know. Well, here, let me do this thought experiment. I'll take your pipeline away and make it mine. It'll now be my pipeline. I get to go and I, I get all of those relationships. I get to sell to them. I get your products to sell to them. Won't this be great? Uh, what are you going to charge me for that? You're going to give it to me for free? Your whole pipeline? Oh, no. Okay. So what's the price? Well, whatever that price is, that should be on the balance sheet because mm -hmm. that is the market value of your pipeline. You only have maybe one buyer yourself, and maybe you don't have any sellers. You don't feel like selling your pipeline, but when you sell your company, sure. it's right in there. We call it goodwill. Yeah. But right. it's actually, yeah. Yeah. actually yeah. A, a goodwill is a hodgepodge. Goodwill can include, can include brand equity. It can include IP that's, that's kind of hiding at the edges, know-how, all that stuff that's in there. But your pipeline, you can measure that sucker. We have an attribution report in Connect and Sell. We can actually measure the growth of your pipeline due to conversations that you're having at the very top of your funnel every single day. You do a test drive with us. If you'll let us have access to your opportunity set, just throw them all at us. What's the name of the company and what's the close date? And what's the uh, the anticipated close date? What's the amount? And if you want us to get really fancy, what's your imputed probability of close, which is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but if you'll give it to us, we'll tell you how much money you're making that you can now discount, how much money is going into the pipeline every single day. You can watch it every day, one day at a time. To me, if you <laughs> don't have control over and visibility into that asset, what are you doing? You're just dreaming, right? You're just like, oh, what are we doing? Well, we're doing stuff, some stuff today. And according to this plan, it will yield fruit next year. Mm. Really? Mm. Like if you were to fertilize a field, would you, would you then just leave it for a year and come back and see how it went? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't, right. It doesn't make sense. We don't do it in other areas, but we do it in business because we're accustomed to not seeing what's going on. We're yeah. accustomed to having what are called reports. A report means somebody tells me something. It's hilarious to me that we call them reports when they come right out of the data. Nobody told you anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, yeah. we've certainly told a lot of stuff uh, uh, to a lot of people in the last uh, two hours here. So uh, we're going to leave it there. So, John, thank yeah. you for being uh, sincerely one of our seven, seven listeners, seven subscribers. <laughs> We got the uh, fetching Mrs. Uh, or Ms. Fanucci here once in a while. We got his sister, Chris's sister, Shelly. We got my mom. We got you. And I think we got a couple other folks out there, Chris. But Two, you know. two of my four kids occasionally listen. Well, there you go. There you go. That's what well, this, this is a groundbreaking show. I mean, it, what you're doing is just fantastic. It's an honor to have been on the program. I, Absolutely. I, really appreciate I don't think it's going to be the last time, too, John. We really like to dive into, again, the craft of face-to-face -face sales really is something, Chris, that's kind of a nuance, right? A field that we really haven't explored as much. And it'd be interesting, certainly talking with John further about an expert who, who does that. And I really love, uh, again, the left brain and the right brain that clearly has made you a success in, in sales, John. So any final thoughts, Chris? Well, I tell you what, we brought in art for the first time. That's a, that's a heck of a thing. We brought in books, but we didn't go deep on the books. I think I've been very lazy about my recommended reading list, but I think we should put them up and make a little bookstore. Yeah. Market dominance bookstore would be kind of a fun thing to have. I mean, I have listed over here. What about Gold Rat, right? What about Deming? I mean, these are the books that, what about Talib's? Oh, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, Next Jesus, anti-fragile. Anti-fragile. I love I was... rants, by the way. I love rants like 
out of the crisis, Deming's rant, grouchy old man saying, yeah, but, but when you read it, you go, I, by the way, it's a signed reading for all my kids. That's the, that my mom had her cruelty and I have mine. <laughs> and when you realize, wait a minute, what makes people do things in work? Pride of workmanship. Just knowing that will change everything about how you approach business. That one sentence. Yeah. What yeah, is the first yeah. sentence in that book? Drive out fear. Drive out fear. Why would you want to drive out fear if you want to control people? Why would you want to do that? It's a big, thick book by, written by a grouchy guy who gave, see a little Japanese memorabilia behind you, who gave, frankly, gifted Japan the post-war economy because the U.S. wasn't interested because we had too much pride. We just like, we know what we're doing. Look, we our industrial machine just conquered the world. We must know what we're doing. Well, it turns out, one thing that's really not obvious, drive out fear. Huh. And people work for pride of workmanship, not money. That's weird. But those are the essences. I mean, that's the stuff where all this is hiding. And I want to get to the books. Yeah, at some point. yeah, yeah, but that, yeah. That's where it's at. Oren's book. I go back to flip the script. I don't even have to open it. My whole team does something in every discovery call that we call a flash roll. And we have to keep reminding ourselves what it's for. It's to establish ourselves as experts, not to teach them anything about our product. Mm-hmm. And it's practiced. Mm-hmm. My fla- I'm very proud of my flash roll. I, I think mine is the best because it's something <laughs> to be proud of, right? But it, it's, it's interesting what's in these books. Yeah. It's interesting when you go into books like Temple Grandin's, mm. uh, an anthropologist on Mars, and you realize there's a whole different way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And you probably don't see it that way, but people you're interacting with might have some of that in them. And like, if you're going to deal with technologists, probably really good to read an anthropologist on Mars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to uh, understand what it's like when we forget stuff or misapprehend something, read V.S. Ramachandran, No Shadows in the Brain or Mind, whichever it is. I can never remember the title because I've got one of those same problems that he's talking about in the book. It's about deficits, mm-hmm. neurological deficits and how they manifest themselves in experience and behavior. That stuff will teach you tons. Read Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Yeah. yeah. Want to learn some stuff about yourself? Sapiens. And about the other person? Yeah. Yeah. So I will do the book thing one of these days. You're, you guys have great reading lists. I have this little trashy one that they've come up with, but this is the stuff. That and, and then one more thing that you said, John, I want to leave everybody with. If you're in business, and especially in sales, and you don't read in the sciences, mm-hmm. real science, not stuff that's politicized, but real science, mm-hmm. find something that you can do to read in the sciences. And my recommendation is just get a subscription, a new scientist, and read two or three articles out of it each week. It's a weekly, so it'll keep you on your toes. They're always coming up with something like why whales, blue whales don't actually choke to death on all that <laughs> seawater. I just read that yesterday, a new scientist. But reading in the sciences grounds you not to the reality. It's not like learn those facts, but to our ignorance, our mutual. Yeah, ignorance. right, 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 right. It right. makes it helps us embrace our ignorance, which is the key to being in a position to help our prospects move forward with us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, that's just great. Helps us embrace our ignorance.
and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Mm-hmm.